we're going to pick up this morning uh, back in Mark chapter 15, where we left off a few weeks ago, and Drew uh, filled in some for us, and then last week um, I finished, or didn't finish, but I looked. Uh, we looked at uh, the Ephesians chapter 4 and how to counsel people, and uh, this week we're going to pick back up in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15 and verse 21, and if you remember where we, uh, where we left off, uh, you know, Jesus had been scourged and, and he was being handed back over to the authorities and, and now this leads into the section of, of our Lord's crucifixion. And so we'll read starting in verse 21 <clears throat> we'll read th- through verse 32 here, but then we'll pick up um, in 33 as well later in the lesson. So in Mark fifteen twenty one, it says, And they, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also reviled him. Then we see in John's account of this, and John, you don't need to flip there, but John 19.1 says, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So since Jesus was a prisoner, condemned to be crucified he was required to carry his own cross that was the custom that you know if you can imagine that if you really were a criminal which he wasn't but if he the real criminals that had to carry their crosses that was just another portion of their punishment if you will you know probably greatly humiliating you know I mean could you imagine you know you know what you're getting ready to be involved in and yet you have to carry the the instrument that's going to be used to carry that out as well. Well, Mark doesn't tell us how far that Jesus actually carried in his cross. I mean, if, you know, what we've looked at that he's been through physically, we know that <clears throat> exhaustion had to be peaked out on his body. Again, he did not pull out the God card and use his supernatural strength at any point. You know, so his physical human body at this point, was extremely weak, and, you know, they were wanting this show to get moving, Is you know, that we could see the, the how rapid all of this series of uh, events was taking place, so here again, you know, this all was, you know, if he was stumbling physically, you know, they want to get this thing going, so let's grab this guy from the crowd, Simon, and um, make him carry it for him, and he was from a city called Cyrene, which uh, if we looked at the map today, it's on the North African coast in, in modern-day Libya. It was a vibrant trade center. 
and it had a large Jewish population. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And so large Jewish population, Simon a Jew, uh, a Jewish pilgrim, you know, he was traveling to Jerusalem like all the other Jewish pilgrims of the area for the purpose of celebrating the Passover. And Mark identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus, uh, which obviously is a is a reference that the people would have been familiar with him. Otherwise, you know, why would you use the people's names? You know, so, you know, here he is. And um, um, they were, according to Romans chapter 16, they were active in the church. Paul mentions Rufus and his mother, which would have been Simon's wife in Romans 16, 13. And since they were active members of the church, I think it's a proper assumption that we could say that, that they were Christians. So it's an amazing thing to see that uh, the hand of God at work in this, you know. I mean, just they just randomly picked Simon out of the crowd, but we know that this, you know, that he, a believer, whether this is the act or he was already, you know, he was in the church later. So what, whether this act is the one that caused him or not, you know, to be, become a believer, I'm not sure, but... Nonetheless, since he's mentioned in Romans, his family is mentioned, we can assume that they all became Christians. So isn't that amazing that Jesus even, and, and there's, that happens several times in this text. And I really struggle with studying for this because we've all, I've been a Christian for, I think, 25 years. And so that, I've heard 25 Easter sermons, you know, and, 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 you know, that's sometimes when you hear, the same account over and over again, you have the tendency to just not dig deep into it or just to kind of, you know, well, yeah, you know, not really look at it that close. But so Simon, you know, became a Christian later, the influence of Christ somehow on his life with that. And also Luke tells us in his account that Jesus gave another public message on the way to, to being crucified, which is amazing to me. He's still preaching. You know how scourged he was, how beaten down he was, you know, and he carrying the cross and then, you know, now still, I'm sure, stumbling to the place. Luke tells us in Luke 23 that he he gives another public message. It says, and following him was a large crowd of, of the people and women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nourished. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And, you know, that is a... uh, prophetic warning, really, of the, the destruction that would fall on Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and, of course, the future devastation in the tribulation time at the end of the age. And he's showing concern, even on the way to the cross, for the city of Jerusalem and its its Jewish inhabitants. So the procession finally reached its destination in uh, this place called Golgotha, translated the place of a skull, it was outside the city uh, along a major road um, so that the crucified people would, would uh, when they passed by, when anybody in the town would, I tried to think of, you know, what would that be like? It'd be like the, 
things in downtown Woodstock, I guess, you know, Main Street. Everybody that goes up and down the street, it was strategically placed there so that everybody could see as they come in and out of the city, the people that are being crucified there. Uh, this was the spot they normally did it. That, the word um, uh, of that location in, in Aramaic literally means skull. Uh, the Latin term is calvaria, which, of course, we get the word calvary. Um, not sure what the actual origin of the name, but Golgotha was a place linked with horrific public death. You know, if you said the word, everybody's mind would go straight, straight to that. Um, some scholars believe it was called that because there was a, a hill there that looked like a skull. Other scholars say, well, the, the, when they died, they just kind of took their bodies down through the bones over there. So, um, you know, there were skulls laying all over the place. And, and according to Numbers 1911 with the Jewish purification laws, I don't think that was the case at all. You know, they were too weird about you know, touching unclean things and uh, things of that nature. You know, the, they they couldn't deal with um, that. Would just not be accustomed to their rules and regulations. So I don't think there was piles of bones laying around there. But so um, you know, just to give a little context of crucifixion, you've probably heard all this before, but just thought we'd look at it a little bit <clears throat> before nailing. Christ to the cross, uh, the, they tried to give him some wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Uh, Matthew, his account explains that after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And myrrh was actually a, a narcotic that was used sometimes as an, an anointing oil, sometimes as a perfume. Uh, in Proverbs 31.6, you, you, you've got the Jewish custom of offering somebody that was dying, whether it was a physical ailment or a crucifixion, some type of pain-deadening medication. But Jesus wanted to feel the full experience of what he was getting ready to go through to complete his atoning work, so he refused to take it. You know, and um, I don't know about y'all, but I thank God for the, the pain-deadening things that that we have today you know there unfortunately um a lot of people abuse those uh, I, I mean i used to be one of those guys but now i greatly appreciate when i have a procedure or whatever that the doctors have the stuff to help us you know and i don't know if you've ever had a procedure where you're awake that otherwise would be extremely painful i had one a week and a half ago and praise god for the medicine right i mean I didn't care. Take my head off. Doesn't matter, you know. That hurts a little bit, and I shoot a little bit more in there. You know, I mean, that that has gotten today. Doctor Ryan could give us a better description, but my description of that as a lay person is today that has gotten. I don't know if this is the right term, but so pure, so clean. You know that the surgeon that was doing the procedure on me, he said the medicine peaks in five to seven minutes. You know, and that's all the longer the procedure was going to take. You know, he hit a rib, so he gave me a little bit more what the nurse did. And But, um, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I was all drunk feeling and nauseated or anything. It, you know, seven minutes, man, I mean, you know, and that's that's neat that God allows doctors to have that stuff for us. And Jesus certainly would have benefited from physically 
benefited from that myrrh, but he, he said no. Um, and then I'm extremely puzzled, not now because I studied it further, but when I first looked at this in verse 24, I was really puzzled with how in the world Mark goes straight into just that little phrase, and they crucified him. Like, wow, really? You know, and uh, but that looks very abrupt, doesn't it? But crucifixion was so well known as a form of execution, you know, during that time that they didn't need, the people then did not need any further uh, description of what was going on there to understand how horrific it was. They saw it all the time, so it was. They didn't need that, but you know we need that sometimes to help us understand. So I looked some into some stuff on this, and the Roman writer Cicero describes crucifixion as the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. You know, and I don't know what that would be equivalent to today, um, but it, it appears to it originated in Persia and uh, was later used by the Romans as a, a brutal way of inflicting death. And uh, it was also used, supposedly, by the Romans to to deter other criminals, right? To, to you know, like in some of the ancient societies where you would, you know, chop the person's wrist off if they were a thief or or whatever. But um, so you know, I thought about that a little bit. Do you really think it would deter a criminal? I mean. Theoretically, in my mind, yeah, you know, I mean, this guy did that, you know, and look, he's hanging on a cross, he's getting ready to die. But, you know, is is there anything that we have in society today that seems to deter criminals? I mean, we've got a judicial system, you know, that's supposed, you know, you know, doesn't seem to, does it? What is the the best deterrent in the world? Well, for us, though. Oh, for us? Yeah. The Holy Spirit, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking, yeah, gun. <laughs> you, yeah, no, the, yeah, the, but the Holy Spirit. I mean, like, you know, I, I was talking to another counselor one time, and we were talking about uh, getting some software on this guy's computer to help him battle pornography, and really wanted to have that guy have a full grasp and understanding. This is just a tool to to maybe help you. But, you know, the real deterrent should be the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, right? Not a guy hanging on a cross or not a, you know, a guy walking around without a hand. Or as I said, I think last week, um, you know, that if Jesus' account uh, uh, of radical amputation that we call it, you know, if you lust after a woman, pluck your eye out, that, you know, probably all men would be blind. And, but yet that still doesn't get rid of the brain that has a mental image, right? So the best deterrent is the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to remember. I mean, by all means, if you've got to do things in your life to, you know, if you've got to drive 100 miles out of the way to not go by the liquor store or the dope dealer or whatever, do that. I'm not saying don't, but the best deterrent is the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And what a gift for us, right? Of course, they didn't have that here, but... But what a gift for us. That's just another sign of the graciousness of God to, to convict our consciences when we are uh, thinking of committing a sin or when we are sinning. Um, but at this time, uh, by the time Jesus was on the scene, 
here Rome had crucified, this is astounding, some estimated 30,000 people in Israel alone. Isn't that astounding? And, uh, matter of fact, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, so many, so many Jewish rebels were crucified that they actually ran out of lumber in Rome. Can you believe that? I mean, just ran out of trees. There wasn't enough to, um, to do it with. So very common practice, right? And then on, on top of the crucifixion, as we saw in the case of Christ, they first they scourge them. You know, that's the severe injury caused by beating and, and just kind of heightens the pain. Now the nerves are heightened with pain and, and, um, you know, it, it was, um, kind of just added to the whole torture, if you will. So when, when the criminal arrived at the place that they were going to crucify him there, they, they were forced on their back to, and, you know, the cross would be, laying on the ground, and they, were, they would uh, have them lay down on top of it. The, the nails that were used um, were five to seven inches long, would have resembled a modern railroad spike. They were driven through the wrist. I know a lot of the pictures we see are through the hand, but through the wrist in order to support the full weight of the victim's body. You know, if it was through the hand in the way as they would push up, you know, it would just tear, tear out, and then there'd be flopping, you know, I guess, but so it was through the wrist, which then as that started to tear, I guess this bone right through here would catch that. And um, The feet were secured with a single spike, the knees bent so they could push up and down to, uh, to breathe. And I mean, you could just imagine, you know, the, the terror on the body as this was going on. I mean, I, I thought about this, that I mean, even pushing up on the back, this wasn't like nicely planed and sanded wood, you know. I'm sure it had splinters and all, and the, the scourging was, would have included the whipping on the back, so the back's already lacerated, and you're pushing up and down trying to breathe. You know what it's like when you get a T-tiny little splinter in your thumb, right? Does that thing not just hurt like crazy? And you dig at it, you know, and it gets all festered looking and, you know, and then you don't use the right instrument and you end up having to go see Tim Ryan and getting an antibiotic because you got the thing infected and it's all pussy and you dig at it some more. You know what I mean? That's a tea tiny, I mean a quarter of an inch briar. Is that just my body or does y'all do that too? It does. I think that's crazy. So can you imagine the torture that we're talking about here? I, I just can't even fathom that. I, how you didn't just pass out as soon as the first spike went in, I don't know. But So on top of that, then they would slowly raise the cross up, and then you know it would, they had the, kind of the hole already dug there for it to set down in, and the, just the thug of the drop of the cross would have given the, the initial jolting reaction. And you know the nails and the pain and the agony, none of that were really... Um, what caused the, the death, the death, the death was the suffocation. As they got weaker and weaker and they couldn't push up anymore, the uh, carbon dioxide would start to build up and, and you couldn't push that out and you would end up suffocating. And so if needed, the soldiers could hasten this asphyxiation by breaking the victim's legs, then they couldn't push up at all. And if you want more information on that, there's a book that John MacArthur wrote called The Murder of Jesus, and chapter 10 of that book 
has a lot of uh, information on crucifixion. Uh, so after securing Jesus on the cross, verse 24 tells us that the uh, soldiers, they divided up his garments, um, casting lots for what each one of them would take. And that, again, was another traditional Jewish uh, thing to do. And, and the apparel would have consisted of uh, four parts, the inner garment, outer garment, um, a belt, I guess, yeah, a belt, sandals, and some type of a headpiece. I guess that's five pieces. And Mark doesn't specify how the clothing was divided, but John does. John tells us in John 19, 23, he says, that Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, decide to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So having distributed the clothing, uh, the soldiers posted a, uh, a watch you know, around the cross. They, they did this whether it was Christ or anybody being crucified because they wanted to be sure somebody didn't come and, and take them down or... or uh, you know, they wanted to be sure that they died and didn't want anybody to try and rescue them. But Mark tells us that this was the third hour, and uh, that would have been 9 a.m., <clears throat> according to the, to the timekeeping of the Jews. And some people will say, well, there, you got a contradiction in the Bible there, because John says uh, that it was about the sixth hour when Pilate sentenced Jesus earlier that morning. But John was using the Roman time schedule, and Mark was using the Jewish one. And the the Roman time schedule began counting hours at midnight. So the sixth hours, you know, the three hours would have been from six to nine. It lines up the right way when they nailed him to the cross. So again, the rapidity, if that's a word, of, of how quick this all just unfolded, you know, just a few hours before they, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And it, but this was all according to God's predetermined timetable, right? You know, now we, I think we got to be careful because in a lot of, um, a lot of times I think we can lose, or maybe it's just me, but a lot of times I can lose the uh, the importance of what God is trying to teach us by just throwing the sovereignty canopy over everything. I probably more than most people wholeheartedly believe in the sovereignty of God in every single aspect of all of creation. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but to you know, I think to look deeper into this to understand that yes, this happened all according to the perfect predetermined timetable that God had, but we can't just, you know, like if you're counseling somebody that's just had a horrific thing happen in their life, you know, and you just throw the Romans 8.28 out and, you know, and said, oh, God's sovereign, brother, you just need to get on with it. You know, there's no compassion or, or sharing of grief. You know, when Paul says, weep with those that weep, you know, rejoice with those that, the, with those that rejoice. Certainly we believe that our Lord is sovereign, but Sometimes it helps us to 
look into to have compassion. Maybe that's what I'm the word I'm looking for. So this predetermined timetable of when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was going to be crucified, right? And just the disciples, I wonder what was going through their minds at this point. They had just celebrated the, the, the final meal with him the night before, and then he comes and sacrifices himself as the real Lamb of God, right? To die at the same... And, and, and this all took place amazingly at the same time that the priests were um, slaughtering the lambs for their sacrifice, and, and I'm often reminded back to that uh, in John 1, I think verse 29, where John the Baptist is out in the uh, wilderness with some of his buddies and, and Jesus walks by and, and keep in mind they're all Jews, right? And, and John says, hey guys, look, this is a paraphrase, right? Hey guys, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, do you think they caught it? You know, I don't know, you know, I, did Jesus transform into a lamb and he was walking by? No. You know, so they were, huh, you know, but what a what a way to, I've actually used that Bible um, passage as, as a way to, to witness to people, you know, talking about, you know, the sacrificial system and how the Jews atoned for sins with the, with the sacrifice of sheep and, and, um, you know, you can tie in the, that you can build a great witnessing tool using the uh, <clears throat> the Passover, the Exodus chapter 12 and the final plague. And then, you know, talking about the blood of the lamb sacrificed for the Jews then over the doorpost of their homes. And then now the blood of Christ, the real sacrificial lamb shed abroad on our hearts, right, of how on our lives so that um, we can have the forgiveness of sins, the real sacrifice. So, you know, again, that's a great way for to compose the Old Testament in witnessing in New Testament times, which really, you know, that it's mind-boggling to me to think that Jesus was dying, the real lamb, at the same time all these guys are over here sacrificing or slaughtering these lambs for their sacrifices. Um, another... Uh, Thing they would do with they, they had a wooden board that they would fasten on top of the cross that would list the crimes of the uh, the person that was being crucified and for Jesus his uh, charge was the king of the Jews and if, if you compare all the gospel accounts of that the full inscription was this is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews and Pilate had actually uh, had the king of the Jews crucified just like a common criminal that was his crime, right? Right alongside these two two robbers um, that were executed, one on his left and one on his right. Um, the word robber there actually uh, carries more than just a petty thief. This isn't the guy that just goes in the 7-Eleven and steals a piece of bubble gum. You know, these are hardened bandits uh, who plundered and stole and left trails of abuse of desolation in their wake. What what comes to your mind when you think of a bandit? What do you what I'll tell you what came into mind. Let's see if there's anything. You know, the the uh this isn't a slam on Native Americans, okay, but this is just historically 
Um, I read a book a couple of years ago. John Michael went, wow. <laughs> I read a book a couple of years ago called The Wrath of Cochise. And uh, these, these raiding Native Americans, that's, they were bandits. That's how they survived. They didn't farm. They didn't, uh, you know, work in factories or anything. They just came and raided and plundered. You know, that they, and they were labeled as bandits. Leaving, they didn't necessarily kill the people. They just took all their stuff. But that, um, that, that's what a bandit does. And, and they, they just wreak havoc on wherever they go into. You know, they just destroy everything um, and, and take it. That's what these guys were like. They weren't just petty thieves. Right. So whatever the motives, Pilate's decision to execute Jesus with these criminals actually uh, perfectly agreed with Old Testament prophecy. Again, that's in Acts chapter four. Isn't an absolute. Here's a question I've always had, and, and maybe a theologian then could answer this for me. Do you think that Pilate and these guys would have done it if they'd have known that they were fully fulfilling the will of God. You know, you ever thought about that? I mean, what do you think? I mean, they didn't have a choice because God's sovereign and he made them do it. But, but you know, would, would they have backed up a little bit of, ooh, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, what do you think? Have, have you ever thought about that, Drew? Uh, <laughs> Put him on the spot. No, no? okay. <laughs> have you all ever thought about that? You know, that... They, Acts chapter 4 tells us that these Jewish leaders, I, I mean these Roman leaders, they, they, and, and the Jews, everybody that was involved, the high priest, the whole group of them that executed Christ, they were fully, they did it because God commanded that it be done. But would they have done it if they had known that they were actually fulfilling God's will? Um, I don't know. I guess they would have had to, right? Yeah, they couldn't have resisted. With, uh, with uh, Herod, who slaughtered all the firstborn, didn't he know that that was prophesied? I don't know. I, I don't know if he did. I thought I heard that. Yeah. Just an interesting thought, you know, which I guess just shows no matter what, God's going to accomplish his will, right? I don't know if they would have, you know, it was, they wouldn't have followed God, right? I mean, yeah. Influenced more by the high priest knew, you know, that uh, that knew some of the prophecies, but weren't connecting the dots, and were still saying, you know, in their minds that this isn't the Messiah. So they weren't. I mean, Jesus said, you know, you tear the temple down, and I will rebuild it. And so they weren't really getting what he was talking about. He specifically said, "This is what I'm going to do." I mm-hmm. believe said, "We don't believe in any of it." Yeah. Because like you said, they had enough of the Old Testament. They knew perfectly what that said, right? Or maybe not perfectly, but... We know, we know that sinning causes consequences and we shouldn't do it, but we still do it anyway. Right. You know, so yeah. cognitively, we may say, you know, God is accomplishing what he wills even through what we, you know, through our sin. Mm-hmm. We do it anyway. Yeah. I think that with, with, the, with the high priests, they, they knew the prophecy. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be, but they also knew that if it happened right then and there, they were out of a job. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were being 
they're and that, looking out for their own interests. They yeah. didn't care that this might be fulfilling the mm-hmm. prophecy of the Old Testament. And they were such people pleasers, they had to keep that image up. Yeah, and, yeah I mean, and they would have, and even Pilate, these people were going to riot. Mm-hmm. He would definitely be the one on the cross if yeah. he let that happen. Yeah. So they were, as we do so many times, looking out for their own interests. And, the, and there's the sin in that. Yeah. And, and we have to watch out for that too. Yeah, so the, it all gets back, what both of y'all are really saying is then it it all gets back to that, you know, of, oh, what's that book by Ed Welch? When people are big, God is small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that whole fear of man thing. You know, I care more about what you think, so therefore I'm going to sin. And Yeah, that's good. Yeah, but it, it's just interesting to think that way though, right? To see how... God is really behind all of this. But I think we said a few weeks ago that, you know, we are 100% fully res- culpable for our sins, responsible, culpable for our sins, and yet God uses those very things to accomplish his will, you know. So everything about crucifixion, though, was to hu- humiliate and degrade the victims, sending a clear message about the repercussions of being an enemy with Rome. You know, you're going to push against me, this is what you're going to get. So, um, those in the crowd who had screamed for his death earlier, now they're joining the leaders uh, at the the site of the crucifixion, hurling abuse, we're we're told, wagging their heads, a gesture of hatred and scorn, and, you know, just on and on and on this, this goes. And even the chief priest, claimed with the scribes representing the leadership in the Sanhedrin were there mocking him. So there you go. Even the, the Jewish leaders that were getting ready to sacrifice these lambs for the forgiveness of their nation, the people of their nation, they're, they're even mocking him there. And uh, Luke 23 tells us the rulers were sneering at him. That means that they, they walked around with their noses up in the air, you know, in disdain for Christ. And, um, of course, this was all foretold prophetically, Psalm 22. Um, then, I mean, just think of the mockery when they, it says in Mark there that he saved others, he cannot save himself. You know, that was that was a very sarcastic devile, or denial of Christ's divine power, Right? I mean, very sarcastic. He saved other people. Can't even save himself. What kind of power is he? How could he be God? Uh, I mean, they'd seen his miracles, hadn't they? Over and over and over again. And yet, in spite of that, they willfully refuse to believe in him. Listen to this quote by John MacArthur. This is, this is just astounding. He says, Though the mockers intended their words as an insult they unintentionally hit on a profound gospel truth. It is because the Lord Jesus submissively refused to rescue himself from the cross that he is able to save others from sin and death. Isn't that good? I mean, he he didn't have to do this, right? And he submitted himself to do that in order to save the very people that were sneering and mocking at him. That, to me, is the greatest demonstration of love I could think of. You talk about sacrificial love, you know, that is it. Uh, You know, 
So continuing there, mocking verse 32 tells us, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They purposefully ignored the countless miracles that, that had taken place. They wanted him to perform one more. Get yourself down from up there, right? I mean, really? You know, you know that, that statement, I think, was more than uh, a hypocritical, sarcastic statement. I think, you know, it, it just was the most deriding thing that they could get, hurl at him. You know, we saw you do this. We saw you cast out demons of those people. We saw you raise Lazarus from the dead. You know, certainly if that's all, get yourself down from up there. I mean, can you imagine that? And then, of course, as we've seen, the, the two guys that were uh, crucified on either side of him, they, they join in. They start mocking him. Uh, I, I just, you know, I'm astounded at that, uh, just the crowd. You know, and I, I just, but frankly, before Christ, where were any of us, right? Doing the same thing, blaspheming God, maybe not cursing him, but certainly living in that manner, right? So the interesting part, again, too, is that the father could have come and destroyed anybody there right on the spot, but he didn't do it. Instead, Isaiah 53.10 says he was pleased to crush him and put him to death so that he might rescue many of those very blasphemers. And Luke tells us, of course, that one of the robbers eventually realized that what he was doing and he repented. And that's in Luke 23, 39 through 43 reads, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered in rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So, Never too late, is it? It's never too late to to repent and trust and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. And that's that's great encouragement for us, I think. You know, I, I don't necessarily think that there's millions of people that profess Christ on their deathbed. I certainly wouldn't want to push it that far, you know. But um, the fact that, that it, it is true, though, that can happen. There's an incidence of it. Um, do you all have any thoughts on that? Of Again, show, just showing the love of Christ at the very end. So really, there's another instance of him preaching. Even while he was hanging on the cross, his life was such a demonstration that somebody believed. Right? I think, I think it is. Uh, it certainly has happened. It's possible, but it's, I think the percentages are more the other way. You know? mm-hmm. So it's important to share our faith mm-hmm. with loved ones. Early, yeah. Uh, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit leads you. Yeah. So a lot of people have that mind. A lot of lost. Or even with mind. unloved ones, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a it's great. It's easier to share with unloved ones than it is with your mom. It is. Why is that? Because there's a relationship there. You don't want to risk losing that relationship. Which gets back to that same point of the people pleasing thing, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, JT and I took a meal to a guy. Uh, from a Roman Catholic background, 
um, well, you're going over Tuesday, right, to the same guy. Um, I think so. <laughs> Isn't he? Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, well. Sorry. Uh, you are now. But, yeah, we, so anyway, we, you know, we took this meal over there and he had, he was in the bathroom and just had gym shorts on and came to the door, you know, and he didn't invite us in, but, you know, I handed him the meal and, uh, and he looked at me like, and he got all, his eyes got big and, and he said, well, he looked at me and Jay, and I guess he was kind of dumbfounded as, well, who's this guy? And JT says, well, this is a friend of mine from church. And, and he just said, why are you guys doing this? What, why would you? I think he even said, secondly, why would you do this for me? And, and JT said, well, because we just want to love on people. You know, and I mean, he was just, he was dumbfounded. And I, and I think in my mind that that wasn't that big of a deal, right? And yet he's thinking now, who in the world are these folks that they're doing these kind acts for me? You know, but our prayer is going to be that, you know, maybe you'll get in <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you can, and you, yeah. <laughs> You know, but I, I, you know, as the Lord gives us those opportunities, it's never too late. And this guy's got a, he's got a really bad disease that, um, you know, he could die real quick. He's young, like what, 42 or something. And, uh, and he's had a couple of strokes very recently. I think he's got cancer of the blood or something now. Um, I don't know if it's leukemia or some other type of, but, uh, you know, so he's got a pretty dismal outlook going here, you know, and now people are starting to come around him and love him and, that's what we're talking about, you know, the love of Christ. And certainly we aren't, I mean, how could we not sacrifice a little bit of time in a meal when Jesus did all this, right? Um, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm in. I just didn't know about it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, it's never, never too late for people to trust Christ as Savior.